0: Okay. Uh all right. We are back with the Chinese Revolution of 1911, part 2. So, where did we leave off, Dave?
1: Would you did you get the impression that the, at this stage the Chinese Revolution had essentially failed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> because um because Sun Yat-sen it's like the way that uh, the way that Chesneau and and his co-authors write in the book that I was using the uh, the three volume book about China from the Opium War to the to 1976, he kind of says Sun Yat-sen had a kind of incoherent um, ideology and in a and a party <clears throat> that wasn't very well organized, and then yeah. Yuan Shikai had pretty much the milit the only military force but he was completely in hawk to the western powers so it's either way it's gonna there's nowhere there's no nowhere in there are you going to get to a national uh movement like japan you know like a, a a powerful country like japan has which is what they're trying to get
1: to yeah so in a sense rather than chinese revolution part 2 this is uh how far back are we going
0: uh, yeah. Right, maybe, the forces yeah. of
1: reaction have pretty much drawn a line. Yeah. And uh how do you make progress against that? You 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 almost need to start a new revolution. Yeah. But you can also lose anything you have gained. And that's what yeah. this episode is largely about. Because they had to deal with Yuan Shikai. This is his game now. Yeah. So we left him uh basically having Yeah, there's a line drawn across China, north and south. It's an old, old line, and it's it's now back in force. So the revolutionaries have to deal with him, and he named his price. He wanted to be president of the new republic. So he's going to force the Manchu to abdicate, and the revolution would win, sort of. He wasn't a republican. He wasn't even a reformer to him. The, the, the This situation was very simple and rooted in Chinese history. The Manchu dynasty had lost the mandate of heaven and the trust and the loyalty of their subjects. And, and it wasn't because the people of China uh, were or weren't Republicans. It was just because the dynasty had made so many mistakes and shown so much weakness of late. They couldn't stand up to the foreign barbarians. They couldn't stand up to the Japanese. So they have to go. And in in the mind of Yuan Shikai, this republic would just be a passing phase. It would be ephemeral. And then a new dynasty would be enthroned and it would be founded just as so many times before by the most powerful military man in the empire, and that would be Yuan Shikai himself. And, you know, he was right in in one sense. Most of China knew nothing of democracy. Only a small I, a minority, I think, had any idea what a republic meant. But he was wrong, too, when he came to the conclusion that that meant They would all accept a return of the old pattern of, you know, empire, of of, uh, authoritarian monarchy. And he was really, really wrong when he thought that they would rally behind him as emperor. But he went ahead with his plan anyway. So he arranged the abdication of the old dynasty. They had no power uh, and they had no money because he had seized the imperial treasury.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so he had one main opponent to getting the em- emperor to voluntarily abdicate. Uh it was a general named General Liang Bi. Uh and they had an imperial conference where Yuan was there and this General Liang Bi was there uh in Jan- on January 7th I believe 1912 we're now talking, yeah. And it, wouldn't you know, Dave, uh, General Liang Bi was assassinated by a bomb thrown by a revolutionary just a couple of days later um which is a which is a stroke of luck for yuan shikai that continues a lot of yuan's enemies seem to be seem to fall to assassination at just just the right time for yuan shikai <laughs> convenient yeah amazing amazing
1: luck yeah. Is, yeah so he convinced the regents that there was no hope in further resistance and that he could arrange satisfactory terms for them. The emperor and his court would retain their titles and their status, and they could continue to occupy the imperial palace, except for a few ceremonial halls. And the emperor could also keep the summer palace as well. Uh, All of this he could keep as his private property, and he would receive an annual pension of $4 million, which is pretty stupendous, uh, at the time. So the abdication and the establishment of the Republic took place on February 12th, 1912. And it's curious. There was no official recognition by any European power. I thought Yuan was, you know, their kind of guy. But they withheld recognition. A day later, uh, Dr. Sun resigned as provisional president, and on the 15th, Yuan Shikai was elected in his place. One of the terms of the agreement was that the capital would be moved to Nanjing in the south, where the Republicans were strongest. So they sent a delegation to escort the new provisional president to the new capital. Uh, Four days later, in the middle of the night, there was uproar in Beijing shooting fires breaking out uh the army had mutinied they were sacking a quarter of the city
0: uh near wow. but but not it seems like the yeah yuan shikai clearly can't move under these circumstances right? no no yeah. and the outbreaks were close
1: to the well not too close but close to the foreign legations my goodness the trouble had to be suppressed and you know yuan was the only guy who could do it so clearly. he You know, regretfully had to point out it would be impossible for him to leave Beijing under these conditions because no one else could control the soldiers if he wasn't there. I mean, now we're (laughs) we're treating this a little sarcastically, but it was clear to everybody that he never meant to leave Beijing and that he had inspired or, or permitted his men to go on a rampage. So now you have two seats of government. The Republican Council is in Nanjing, but the president is in Beijing. The council were organizing for the election of the first parliament, the the constitutional assembly. Sun Yat-sen was not leading this endeavor. He, He wasn't really interested in the form of government. His goal had always just been to topple the Manchus. So job done. And he left the political program to one of his ablest followers, Song Zhao Ren. Yep. And Song organized an open parliamentary party called the Kuomintang. That's a, a name we will hear again in future, the Nationalist Party. Now, Yuan is worried the election might not go the way he envisioned. So he countered by forming his own party, the Republican Party. And the rest of that year passed in political maneuvers. Uh, The army was not disbanded. The government was short of money and there had been no major reforms in the administration. The main uh, changes were in names and the growing number of provincial governors who were military men rather than civil officials. Many of the civil officials had resigned. So the election was held in February 1913, one year after the fall of the Manchu dynasty. Only 10% of the adult males were allowed to vote, about 40 million in all. So the gentry, the landowners, and middle class merchants. The election was uh, openly corrupt, actually flagrantly corrupt. Votes were offered for sale on the stock market and freely purchased. But it was still a big victory for the Kuomintang. They won 269 of 596 seats in the House of Representatives and 123 of 274 seats in the Senate. And the majority of the remaining seats were split between three rival parties. But you had over 300 small parties that had contested the election. So... Interesting results, despite all of the uh, votes for sale and and the corruption. So Song uh, Ren now looked to be the obvious choice for the position of prime minister. Uh, During his campaign, he made no secret of his intention to protect the powers and independence of the elected assemblies from the influence of the president. In, In fact, he said that he would limit the powers of the president. Uh, on March 20th, Song was shot twice at the Shanghai railway station. Uh, the lone gunman escaped but was later arrested. And it turns out that he was uh, basically a hitman who had been contracted for the killing by Ying Guixing, uh, a Shanghai underworld figure with links to Yuan Shikai's regime. So they followed the trail of evidence. It led to the secretary of the cabinet and the provisional premier of Yuan Shikai's government, a fellow named Zhao Jun. Uh, so that's not even a fortunate accident. Uh, Chinese Contemporary Chinese media sources considered Yuan, you know, the man most likely behind the assassination. But the main conspirators investigated by authorities, were themselves assassinated or mysteriously disappeared. (laughs) So because of the lack of evidence, Yuan was never officially implicated. Uh, After an investigation revealed uh, telegraph messages implicating Ying Guixin in Song's assassination, Ying attempted to flee north where Yuan could protect him. But he was killed by two swordsmen while riding in a first class train carriage. And uh, the minister, Zhao Jun was poisoned in 1914.
0: (laughs) Wow. So on, on the Kuomintang side, Shesno writes that although it was virtually certain that Yuan was responsible, the Kuomintang had to accept the crime with resignation. The death of Song marked the end of the parliamentary experiment and opened the era of dictatorship. So, yeah, parliament assembled, but without
1: strong leadership it it basically floundered yeah you can see why you know the members would be a little wary about taking a strong leadership yeah. position <laughs> yeah. so they ended up uh, in endless theoretical discussions about the future constitution one of the few acts that they uh, passed quickly was to vote themselves generous salaries
0: <laughs> and meanwhile just- yuan went ahead with his plans so Yuan has a number of problems, but his biggest problem is financial. Um, the government income from all sources is about 8 million tails. Remember, a tail is a gr- 7 grams of silver. It's like a small silver coin. So that was the unit of um, money for in which these things were counted by the Chinese government since before uh, the imperialists came, right? So... Um, Keeping the northern army up alone, just the northern army that's loyal to him, is 3.5 million. So that's already he's only almost half. And then repaying the foreign loan is about five million a year. So every year at this rate, he's down half a million tails. Uh, and he hasn't even he hasn't even got an emergency fund or anything else that might come up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so he has no choice but to go to the Western powers and, you know, ask for some kind of debt relief. So in April of 1913, he concluded a reorganization loan for £25 million with a consortium of foreign banks, uh, British, French, German, Japanese, Russian, Belgian and Swedish and now, miraculously, the foreign powers approve of Yuan and his government. Now parliament never saw never approved this loan, and many saw it as a betrayal of the Republic. But Yuan had his money now, and that made him independent of parliament so he could, you
0: know, safely ignore them. Here are some details of the reorganization loan contract. Twenty five million pounds, ten million goes to servicing the debt. So right back to the to the powers. Uh, $2 million to reorganize the SALT tax system, $5.5 million for current expenses from April 1913, when the loans concluded, through to September 1913. Uh, other conditions are that the Chinese government has to appoint, appoint foreigners to all of the key financial posts. So a man named Richard Dane becomes the head of SALT tax administration. Konavolof, uh and Padu are in charge of the budget quoting Shaz, no the money deposited in foreign banks in peking was to be paid out gradually while justifications had to be produced which is an onerous and extremely humiliating procedure for the chinese government so whereas before the chinese government would collect the money themselves now all the money goes straight to the to the imperialists and they decide then the chinese government applies like hey can we get some money to do this can we get some money to do that so it's like um you know your your expense claims <laughs> the chinese government has to fill, fill out expense claims for everything uh and prove to the banks to the western banks that they uh can justify the expense um so yuan's business model is is this right he's basically selling more and more of china to the western imperialists uh in order to stay in power and two of the big deals that he makes are Russia, which insists on the autonomy of Outer Mongolia, um, and they've already set up a military garrison there, uh, and Britain, which insists on the autonomy of Tibet. Um, both of these areas, Outer Mongolia and Tibet, had declared independence back in November 1911. and on. Uh, October seventh, nineteen thirteen, Yuan Shikai signs away control of these areas uh, to uh, auto- so-called autonomy, but ultimately otto Mongolia goes to Russia, Britain goes to Tibet—I mean, Tibet goes to Britain—and uh, and that's how he gets recognition from the great powers. Britain and Russia start, and the rest follow.
1: Yeah. Um. And it- Yeah, and at the same time, he's replacing governors and military commanders in the South with his own men. So there's no mistaking what this means. And, you know, his intentions are fairly, fairly
0: clear. There's not much they can do about it, though. Yeah, you mentioned that Parliament um, was upset about him signing the reorganization loan. And they passed a motion of censure, Dave. So strongly worded motion was passed. Yuan Shikai ignored it. And he started paying off Kuomintang members a thousand pounds each from the loan funds to, (laughs) to leave the party. So he's trying to pick the coalition apart that way as well. Okay.
1: Yeah, as I say, the Republicans had figured it out. But several southern provinces denounced Yuan and declared independence. So this is real. Resistance, you know, a motion of censure's just, yeah. uh, just words, but these are serious actions. Sun Yat-sen denounced Yuan as well, but he was in Shanghai and thought this is not a safe place to be, so he left for Japan.
0: Yeah, so six provinces actually rose. So this was, you know, how you mentioned at the beginning that you might have to do another revolution. This is considered some kind of other attempt at a revolution in 1913. Six provinces declare independence but only two jiangxi and jiangsu uh resist like they actually offer military resistance but uh yuan, yuan shikai's troops win in the end and nan Nanjing, i guess falls september 2nd 1913 and that's the end of that rebellion there's a lot of anti-yuan shikai feeling but people are too tired to support another rebellion against him after all these rebellions um Nevertheless, while there were these provincial declarations of independence, there was also a peasant rebellion in the south led by leaders of the old secret societies uh, that was called the White Wolf Rebellion of summer 1913. But there was no connection to the independence declaring provinces, to sannyat-sen's United League, or the Kuomintang. So in that sense, like the fact that there were two separate revolts Um, At the same time that had no connection to each other, both of which fell apart, uh, are remembered as the failure of 1913. Yeah. Yeah, the revolt
1: collapsed. Uh, One of Yuan's generals, Zhang Jun? Shun, Shun, X-U-N. Zhang Shun. Yeah. Yeah. he had served as military escort for the Empress Dowager during the Boxer Rebellion and later on refused to cut his cue, the symbol of loyalty to the Manchu dynasty. So this guy Zhang, uh, described as brutal and reactionary, captured Nanjing and then let his troops loose on the defenseless civilians. So old, old style. Uh, at this moment, Yuan is supreme. The generals pressured Parliament to declare him full president. The members met on October 6th. They were denied food and surrounded by a villainous mob, so it was a bit like a papal election from the Middle Ages. Uh, They gave in. Yuan was installed in great pomp four days later, and the foreign powers quickly extended official recognition of his legally constituted government. Parliament had served its purpose. He didn't need that anymore. He uh, Yuan also outlawed, outlawed the Guomindang on the grounds that it was a seditious party implicated in the recent revolt. What was left of Parliament didn't have a quorum, so they couldn't meet. And early in 1914, he just dissolved Parliament entirely. He replaced it with a hand-picked council, which on May 1st proposed a new constitution. The president would have all of the powers which the Empress Dowager Sishi had proposed for the emperor in 1908. So if you have all the same powers as the emperor, all you need is a name change, right? From president to emperor Yuan Shikai. There's no opposition. The Republicans have fled or gone into hiding. The people appear to be indifferent or, as you say, just weary. weary. Uh, and then World War One broke out, and Yuan offered to join the Allies. And it's really interesting to speculate: what if he had? It it it's a plan that he was talked out of, mainly by I think by a British uh, diplomat. The Allies feared that if China participated, that might alienate Japan. <laughs> japan quickly entered the war so that they could seize the german naval base of Qingdao, and that seemed more useful to the allies than anything the chinese army might accomplish yeah
0: so, like how, where would the uh, how who would the chinese attack in that war like the germans but from where oh from land Right. Yeah, they, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So the yeah,
1: the Allies figured that the Chinese couldn't actually do anything, but yeah, still, you would have the Germans having to defend, you know, their, their colonies there. Yeah, their Asian yeah. colonies.
0: Yeah, I suppose.
1: So rather than China reconquering its territory, which I, maybe they see as a bad example, uh, yeah. So there's a story that the Germans knew the Japanese were going to attack them there, and that they considered
0: giving Qingdao back to China. Well, yeah, I mean, they had a lot of schemes, right? I mean, remember the Mexican Revolution, (laughs) all the ideas they had? Yeah, let's recruit China.
1: I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. So instead of joining the war, uh, China stayed neutral. And at the end of 1914, Yuan made a sacrifice at the altar of heaven in Beijing. This was a special rite which only an emperor could perform. So nobody missed the significance of this. His intention was like crystal clear. So he then organized a convention, which met in August of 1915. And the convention voted, surprisingly, for a restoration of the monarchy. Oh. And the convention then invited Yuan Shikai to ascend the throne. He made the customary triple refusal to show his humility and then bowed to the will of the people. And he planned to formally proclaim the new dynasty on New Year's Day. <laughs>
0: um, okay so I'm gonna read you a quote this is quoted and complete it's a it's a package that's in the appendix of one of the chapters to Chezno China from the 1911 revolution to liberation it's a portrait of Yuan Shikai Fernand Fargenel à travers la Revolution chinoise 1914 book he says the following: When seen close up, the effect he produced was not that which might have been expected, judging by what his enemies said of him. The impression he gives when seen in the flesh is not at all in keeping with his reputation for double-dealing, deceit, and treachery. His, His looks, which to a European observer are pleasing rather than otherwise, work in his favor. Compared with his entourage, he gives an impression of loyalty, and yet the story of his life is there to tell us exactly what has happened. Must we therefore believe in an unparalleled capacity for dissimulation? I do not think so. Yuan Shi seems to me to be an atavistic product of an ancient society come too late into a new world. What's atavistic, Dave? Like, anachronistic kind of?
1: Uh, Basic, pr- primal.
0: Okay. Let, me, let me double check. I'll continue. His acts of duplicity and cruelty, which in the eyes of the new Chinese appear as so many inexpiable crimes, are not so to him. He can understand neither how untimely they are nor how truly immoral absolute sovereigns reasoned in the same way his misfortune in that of his country was that he stood for a bygone age his views on government on the administration of finance and on centralization were a statesman's views but the sort of statesman he was capable of being an old-time despot he would perhaps have made a good tyrant <laughs> certainly uh, what he
1: intended to do
0: and there's a little bit more from this. He says, he physically, he had a massive frame and a powerful neck. His whole body was animated by liveliness of gesture and expression. His piercing eyes would follow his interlocutor while he was mentally already far ahead of what was being said. Now, the uh, nationalists like Liang Qichao, he basically said, you know, the problem with this guy is that he doesn't understand people. He all that he knows about men is that they fear the dagger and love gold. So, okay. so I I said portrait of the brief, briefest, um, briefest reigning emperor. (laughs) Well, that's actually a great quote, because that's certainly how he acts.
1: So uh, atavism is a biological term whereby an ancestral genetic trait reappears after having been lost through evolutionary change in previous generations. So when you say atavistic, I was going to use the word primitive. I thought maybe that's not, you know, the nicest thing to say. But it, in a sense, it's used negatively. You, yeah. you are going back to right. some uh, crude
0: so thing like,
1: that your ancestors used to do.
0: So, like, I think about, like, when India and China had this... Weapons like battle with clubs and swords on the on the mountains last year or two years ago. that's yeah. kind of atavistic, right? Because yeah, you, they're fighting with ancient weapons, <laughs> whatever hand to hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's not a compliment, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the foreign powers weren't particularly enthusiastic, but uh, the, they had other problems, like the fact that the war wasn't going well for the allies. So this is the moment that Japan chose to intervene and they presented the 21 demands. Uh, they came in five sections and the 21 demands included a cession of German rights in Shandong province to Japan, the right to exploit the mineral wealth of South Manchuria, a joint Chinese and Japanese operation of the uh, huge Han Yiping, uh iron company in central china and the fifth group of demands went much much further joint police control of key places in china the right to provide weapons and advisors for the chinese army the sole rights to mining railway and harbor development in fujian province and taken collectively that would have meant pretty much the end of Chinese sovereignty. So Yuan is in a tough spot. So he leaked the Japanese demands to the foreign (laughs) press. Yeah. I guess the Japanese were were counting on the Allies being preoccupied with the the war. But uh, they noticed, they noticed, Britain asked for more information. (laughs) And the U.S. sent a formal complaint concerning American interests and the infringement of Chinese sovereignty. Incredible how America rises to defend Chinese sovereignty so quickly. Major concern
0: of theirs, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yuan still basically had to give in to Japanese demands, but the fifth section was omitted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is a bad, bad. This puts him in a very bad situation. So Shesno writes, a great feeling of national humiliation aroused Chinese intellectuals and the national bourgeoisie organized a vast movement to boycott Japanese goods. Even so, Yuan Shikai agreed to submit to these demands in the Treaty of May 25th, 1915. He was probably unable to offer any resistance to them, and he was quite willing to comply, anxious as he was to, above all, to strengthen his own power, which it did not do. No. No, and it was an enormous
1: blow to his prestige. Uh, he he basically turned into the manchu, right? This is this is the reason the dynasty fell. Their weakness, their inability to stand up to uh, the foreigners. And you know, you're a brand new emperor. You're supposed to be vital and dynamic, and you immediately crumble under the first pressure and the japanese didn't stop there they started subsidizing his opponents so their ambitions uh in china have escalated rather
0: dramatically Uh, this is interesting right because it's like yuan shikai is their guy but they also can't seem to stop themselves from undermining him like he gives them everything they that they want but they they're so late to recognize him they're so stingy with the loans they never help him out and and so they generate all kinds of opposition even though it's to their own kind of puppet yeah too greedy
1: well and the japanese too i mean you got i don't know how many of your demands were met but yeah many 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 why not you know rely just digest (laughs) the meal and enjoy it yeah no, got to try to recover the part we didn't get. Um, yeah, the in China the educated class had been disappointed by the Republic, but they weren't ready to return to absolute monarchy, and and especially this one. Uh, yeah, as as your your French Fargenel, beautiful description. Everybody knows Yuan's history. He betrayed everybody. And so uh, they're not that keen on him. And his son and heir was uh, unpopular, arrogant, and incompetent. Yuan's aging, his health is declining. None of this looks promising. And the military commanders that he relied on, they were beginning to uh, get a sense of their own power and they started to get the idea that to be generals in a republic would be better for them than being the servants of a new emperor so Yuan had never been very strong in the far southwest on december 25th 1915 the governor of yunnan province not one of his appointees revolted and denounced the new emperor Uh, Yuan wasn't too worried. He thought the trouble was purely local and it would crumble like, you know, the other rebellions. But uh, he was wrong. In January, the neighboring provinces joined the revolt. And worse yet, the troops he sent against the rebels refused to fight. And by February, Yuan realized he had to postpone his enthronement until he could restore order. But it was already too late for him. Governor after governor, general after general, they all deserted him. And in a joint telegram, they demanded the abdication of the new dynasty. And he, he seems to have been, you know, personally crushed by these defections.
0: After everything I've done for you? <clears throat> well,
1: after all the gold I gave you and all the uh, <laughs> sticks I, I beat you with, um, how can this be? But on march twenty second, nineteen sixteen, he vacated the throne, abolished the monarchy, and resumed the presidency. Hey, if I change the name, is that okay? But that was not enough for his opponents. The Republicans had dared to return to their stronghold in Canton, and the generals knew better than to trust uh well, they, they had turned against him. So you cannot betray the emperor president and then make a deal with him. <laughs> he, he's he got to go. Yuan tried to hang on, but he died uh, June 6th. And and the reason for his failure is really, really simple. Nobody trusted him. Yeah. He betrayed the emperor. He disobeyed Sishi, decimated the boxers betrayed the manchu regents betrayed the republic too too much too too many betrayals and he uh, forgot one of the lessons of chinese history the founders of new dynasties had inspired great loyalty something he couldn't do so now the republic uh, fell into confusion and civil war the generals and the provincial government uh governors mostly fought for themselves and china is headed for the era of the warlords
0: yeah oh, not oh, not man. good yeah so we'll come back to the to the warlord era during the interwar series but a couple of other notes one Interesting, because between 1911 and 1915, despite all of this uncertainty and chaos, there was actually some degree of economic development, expansion, modernization. There was a monetary reform. There was a maintenance of the silver currency. Some good advice, actually, from the foreign powers, I think, at this stage, at least. Um, I'll get into why (laughs) I think that. Uh, in a couple of episodes, we're going to do an episode on just the gold standard, Dave. There's a there's a whole story of how the gold standard is, t- uh, what do you call it, made responsible, or like people argue that the collapse of the gold standard was also an important prelude to the war uh, happening. Uh, so there were good harvests. Uh, there was lots of silk and cotton. There were new tin mines, iron foundries formed, uh, rice and cotton mills, flour mills. Town walls were torn down, and some entrepreneurial Chinese business uh, people came back from the U.S. uh, to start businesses, and they were pretty successful in this period. Um, As for the imperialists, they, (laughs) they cleverly used this period to get themselves paid the customs revenues directly into their banks so that they could pay the Chinese government out as needed. So that gives them incredible leverage over whoever is going to be in power, which is why rather than anyone trying to be in power <laughs> after Yuan Shikai, they just, it all just falls apart. Uh, it's interesting how they put so much pressure on China, the Chinese central government, that it collapsed. Um, so... 1911 or 1913 revolutions, success or failure? Um, I'd say failure. Uh, we do have a success in 1949, so we can. Uh, that's that's how historians look at it, right? They say, okay, why didn't 1949 happen in 1911? It's kind of like, what did they have going for them in the 1949 version? Uh, and of course, what are the differences between the Chinese, the Communist Party of China, and the Guomindang or the United League, right? Mm-hmm. Um and the Shesno says the basic mold of society, the exploitation which had hundreds of millions of peasants under the domination of landlords and rural gentry, was not broken by the Republican Revolution. So in that sense, somewhat similar to the Turkish and Persian Revolutions. Mm-hmm. Uh Chesno says the founding of the Tongmung Hui or the United League and the 1911 Revolution fall into the same general movement which sparked off the radicalization of the Congress Party of India in 1905, the beginnings of revolutionary nationalism in Vietnam, which he puts in a bracket, the departure of fanboy chow for Tokyo in 1905. No idea. I'll have to look into that later. And the young Turkish and Persian revolutions of 07 and 08. So. Right. So one one part is the failure of program.
1: There's nothing in there about Land redistribution yeah. and the peasants, right? Who yeah. are the majority? Yeah. So that, that's a failure. And then letting the revolution be led by military men.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: another another weakness. So interestingly, Sun Yat-sen is revered by nationalists and communists. He's a hero to both. Uh-huh. In in some way, it, it's almost like a uh, one of the, one of the reasons for uh, Che Guevara's popularity. Yeah, yeah. Sun Yat Sen was a professional revolutionary. Right, he wasn't a warlord. He wasn't a political boss, and he never held power. So somehow, he's seen as having you know clean hands, a pure revolutionary. Yeah, but he but he failed. Uh I don't know. In in quite a few cultures, there's a reverence for the uh, the likable loser.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I suppose you know, if betw- if you're gonna revere someone between Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen, <laughs> it's probably that's not too to- hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's not too hard. He's the he's the best choice of this period. So where to next, Dave? Uh, We're going to go back
1: to Europe and the years leading up to the war with several
0: crises, dress rehearsals, if you like. Right. Yeah. Crisis to crisis to crisis. All right. We'll see you all then.